Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. About a year ago, I connected with Dr. Richard Bell through our librarian, Jim Green. While I hadn't yet met Dr. Bell, I certainly knew of him. He's one of a handful of scholars who's received multiple research fellowships from the library company. First as a doctoral candidate at Harvard in 2003 and 2004, and later as a faculty member at the University of Maryland in 2012 and 2013. During that last fellowship in 2013, Dr. Bell began work on a project entitled Slavery's Black Market, a Microhistory. Today, that project has matured into a remarkable new volume entitled Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery in Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Stolen shines a light on what Dr. Bell terms the Reverse Underground Railroad, a black market network of human traffickers and slave traders who stole away thousands of legally free African Americans from their families in free northern cities, most especially Philadelphia. Deeply researched, yet written in an accessible direct voice, Stolen reveals the precarity of freedom through a microhistory of five boys kidnapped and transported to slaveholding states. Jill Lepore has called it, quote, a heartbreaking and searing account of those stories that chronicles not only the agonies and atrocities of slavery, but the fragility of freedom and the dauntlessness of resistance. Dr. Richard Bell is Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland. He's held research fellowships at Yale, Cambridge, and the Library of Congress, and he is a recipient of the National Endowment of the Humanities Public Scholar Award. Stolen is an example of exactly why Dr. Bell is such an inspiring public humanist. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Talking in the Library, Rick. Thanks for having me, Will. I've pulled out your book, and towards the back of it, there is an image that I was hoping that you might be able to describe and talk a little bit about what it's doing in the book, what it looks like, where it came from. Yeah, this is one of the, I think many of the images in this book are, are pretty arresting, actually. But this one is arresting in a different way from some of the others. It's a giant letter K drawn from page nine of something called the anti-slavery alphabet. And below this giant, colorful letter K, there's a little poem. And it reads, K is the kidnapper who stole that little child and mother, shrieking it clung around her but he tore them from each other. And this anti-slavery alphabet is something aimed at families and kids to teach kids the alphabet with a strong anti-slavery activist bent. So it's a strange little document. The anti-slavery alphabet is a strange little document. It's in the collections of the Library of Company, along with many other items I used in the research for this new book. And I chose to illustrate my book with this image because it gets at one of the outcomes of the story I tell in the book, which is that after the kidnapping case, which I write about for 200-odd pages, in this book, we see many anti-slavery activists really bear down on, really focus on, really try to spotlight just how common a phenomenon the kidnapping of free black people, adults and children from northern towns and cities like Philly was in the early 19th century, and to focus the northern reading public's attention on the suffering of black families ripped apart by 
kidnappers, as we see most explicitly in this image with the giant letter K. K is the kidnapper, um, but also uh, legal slave traders and by slavery itself. And I argue in the book that this focus among anti-slavery writers on the suffering of black families ripped apart by different agents of the slave power is a powerful new theme in anti-slavery writing in the second quarter of the 19th century. I would say it's one of the dominant themes in anti-slavery writing after the events in this book. Hmm. So Rick, I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit more about the fact that this is an image that the audience is children, that it's engaging kidnapping around children, because I think when a lot of people think about kidnapping in the early 19th century, they'll think about Solomon Northup. And there you have a middle-aged black man who is abducted. Of course, that's popularized with 12 Years a Slave. Until I read your book, I didn't know very much about them. So can you tell me a little bit more about how common it was that children were the ones being abducted? So this was one of the central questions that actually drove my research. How common was it for free black people to be kidnapped and trafficked into slavery from northern towns and cities? And was Solomon Northup's experience, which is documented in his amazing and chilling autobiography, 12 Years a Slave, how common was the experience of adults like Northup to be kidnapped and trafficked into slavery? And, you know, at the end of this research process, um, I can say with some confidence that while adults were kidnapped with regularity, the kidnapping of children, meaning folks under the age of 16, was probably vastly more common. I mean, Northup, as you pointed out, is in his mid-30s. He's literate. He's somewhat prosperous. He's employed. In many ways, that makes him quite unusual in terms of who was kidnapped and trafficked um, more commonly into slavery in the Deep South between the Revolution and the Civil War. It turns out that highly opportunistic predators seized on poorly educated street kids much more commonly with simple ruses that could separate them from whatever friends or family they might be fortunate enough to have. If you know the Northup story well, you know that he is wined and dined and drugged, which in retrospect is quite an elaborate plan of deception and incarceration. The four of the five boys who feature in my book uh, are told a much simpler lie. They're, they're told there's a ship around the corner full of boxes of peaches, watermelons, and other fruit that I need your help unloading. It's about an hour's work. It pays 25 cents. You kids look hungry. You look strong. Uh, this is easy money for you. And to be clear, folks, uh, 25 cents is a decent amount of money for an hour's work in the 1820s. And these kids walk around the corner and walk onto that ship voluntarily. No drugging, no whining, no dining needed. And um, unfortunately, ruses like this work with remarkable, chilling success. I estimate thousands, if not tens of thousands of times in the first 50 years of the uh, 19th century. And so the volume of children who find themselves being spirited away from northern towns and cities like Philadelphia and who end up on the roads headed towards Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama is simply enormous. Given that we are talking here at the Library Company of Philadelphia, thinking about the location here, I think is really valuable for us because you write early in the text that Philadelphia is actually probably one of the most dangerous places to be a free black person anywhere in the United States. Why is Philadelphia the center of kidnapping? 
Yeah, on the one hand, that makes no sense, right? Or it's very counterintuitive, I think, because uh, we know that by 1825, Philadelphia is basically free soil. It's basically a free city and a basically free state. Um, that since gradual abolition kicked in in 1780, the enslaved population has declined to almost nothing by 1825. And the, the free black population of the city has risen and risen and risen steadily. So that by 1825, it's about 12,000 free black people who have a lot of things going for them in a city like this. And with 12,000 other other people from similar backgrounds, similar experiences, clubbing together to build a community. So there are free black churches rising in Philadelphia. There are free black mutual aid organizations. There are Freemasons, etc., etc., etc. And in many ways, Philadelphia is the best place to be free and black in the United States. But at the same time, it is also the most dangerous place because Philadelphia is, what, about 40 miles north of the southern Pennsylvania border. Think of the Mason-Dixon line mm -hmm. in this period, which basically divides slave states from free states, not perfectly, but give or take. And Philadelphia's proximity to that slavery line, that freedom line, means that Philadelphia's large and dynamic free black population is um, easily susceptible to predators from the slave states, Delaware, Virginia, Maryland, who will come up to Philadelphia, grab anyone they can, stuff them into a ship, and get that ship as quickly as they can out of the city of brotherly love into the slave states where the legal situation is certainly different and then try to spirit them away, try to pass them off as legally purchased enslaved people traveling to the south on legitimate domestic slave trade business. So Philadelphia is inartfully placed. It leaves um, its free black population, I think, vulnerable to these sort of opportunistic predators. One of the things that I found really surprising was when you're narrating this journey and you do such a nice job offering a sense of the human toll of this whole system, you attend to the fact that this isn't a journey that's expedited by putting these kids on ships. It's basically done over land, and you write at one point, travelers on the southern road saw these convoys of children and adults all the time. The turnpikes and paths that veined the southern states were the capillaries of a domestic middle passage, more than twice the size of the transatlantic slave trade to the British mainland colonies had been. So why is that the case? Yeah, so we're, um, it's important we notice there that in that passage you read, I'm talking uh, about two things simultaneously. I'm talking first about the illegal kidnapping and trafficking into slavery and then passage over land into the Deep South, which in the mm -hmm. book I call the reverse Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. But in that passage you read, I'm also talking about the legal domestic slave trade. And those claims you read about the scale of the volume actually refer to the legal domestic slave trade. And that's a key insight because kidnappers and traffickers wanted to be mistaken hmm. for legal domestic slave traders at every turn. That's one of the reasons they carried people over land, because many legal domestic slave traders were carrying, as you pointed out just then, uh, their own coffles of legally purchased enslaved people from Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, down for resale at jacked up prices in the cotton kingdom. And uh, kidnappers and traffickers who've stolen free people, like the five free boys I write about in stolen, want to be on the same roads, want to be a half mile ahead of a legal slave trade coffle or a half mile behind so that they do not stand out, which is another way to say they work hard to hide in plain sight. There are other reasons why traffickers and kidnappers choose the overland um, route. One is that, believe it or not, it's actually cheaper than putting, uh, than renting a ship or renting cargo space in a ship, even though it takes much longer, as you know. 
And also by going over land, they avoid the potential of a customs-like inspection at a port city in the other end, like uh, New Orleans, for instance. Many of the records we have about the legal domestic slave trade come from the the inspections that the port of New Orleans conducted for arriving ships full of enslaved people. So we know far less about the many more enslaved Americans who came over land, either through the legal domestic slave trade <laughs> or what I write about in the book, the kidnapping and trafficking of free people along the same routes. So... Um you're writing about a specific group of kidnappers. This is the Cannon Gang, is that right? That's uh, right. So to what extent were, were the members of the Cannon Gang representative of the kinds of kidnappers that were predating cities like Philadelphia at this time? And to what extent were they sort of a group unto themselves? Yeah, both, of course, right? As with any group of individuals, there are some ways they're representative of a larger whole and some ways in which they're unique and distinctive. So they are one of innumerable, literally we can't count the exact number of kidnapping crews, kidnapping gangs, which are operating in the early 19th century. Uh, many of these gangs are small-scale operations, by which I mean the number of members is probably fewer than 10, not in double digits. They are often, the members of these gangs are often related by blood or marriage to each other. So we could call them family businesses in a grotesque sort mm -hmm. of way, because those ties of blood, marriage, and loyalty seem to be the glue that binds them together when they're doing criminal activity like this. In some other ways, this gang, the Cannon Gang, the Cannon-Johnson Gang, named after two of the leaders, Jesse Cannon, his widow Patty Cannon, and their son-in-law Joseph Johnson, are a little bit unusual. They're unusual in their longevity. They're at it for at least 20 years, as far as we can tell. They're on the larger side. I estimate they have between 10 and 15 members or loose affiliations active at any one time. They also make the unusual, though not wholly unique, decision to occasionally employ mixed-race people to do some of the front-end kidnapping work, a chillingly strategic choice to turn people of color against themselves mm -hmm. when the pay is enormous, uh, enough money to stifle these mixed-race folks' consciences, obviously, and put food on their own tables. This gang is arguably more prolific. It's is responsible for the kidnapping of disappearance, as far as we can tell, of more black Americans from free cities like Philadelphia and from Baltimore too, by the way, than almost any other gang we care to identify. And they're extremely willing to use violence or the threat of violence to, to move things along and get that work done. So this gang is actually still relatively well known out across uh, certain parts of the United States today. If you cross the Chesapeake Bay Bridge from Annapolis over the Chesapeake Bay into the eastern shore of Maryland or even go into Delaware, then one of this gang's leaders, Patty Cannon, is still someone well known in what I'm going to call folklore uh, in contemporary mythology. Uh, this is a name that people recognize whenever I mention it on that side of the bridge, but on in Washington, D.C., where I live now, or in Philadelphia, it's much less well-known about how notorious this gang was in its own lifetime. Yeah, I was really struck by the sort of heterogeneous composition of the gang. I mean, the fact that Patty Cannon sort of runs the operation, which uh, certainly 
surprised me because I sort of imagined this as a group of sort of nefarious, you know, um, southern white men. But the idea that there was a woman participating. Yeah, and she's worth saying just just quickly that she's a widow. She takes over or inherits this part of the family business Mm -hmm. when her husband, Jesse, who was the originator Mm -hmm. uh, of this gang, uh, dies after many years of doing these terrible things. Yeah, and then there's John Purnell, who's the kidnapper of the boys, who you describe as a phantom, a conjuring trick, a chameleon, who works through all these aliens and this wide network uh, whose greatest asset you describe as being his, his dark complexion. That's right. So John Penner is the mixed-race man I referred to just a, a moment uh, ago who is the one who offers these four boys the chances to unload peaches and watermelons mm. uh, and who is the man who outright abducts by shoving a black gag into the mouth of the fifth boy uh, in my story about five boys kidnapped in Philadelphia in 1825. Uh, it's very clear to me why the gang hires someone like Purnell, because they do gain the element of misdirection, the element of surprise. To put this another way, Will, we know that free black families were well aware of the threat posed by white-led kidnapping gangs in places like Philly. And Philadelphia's large, dynamic free black population worked terribly hard to protect themselves and their loved ones from the predations of these of these white gangs, which means they formed, you know, neighborhood watches, you know, basically vigilance committees and, and so on, vigilante commissions. If they saw someone walking into their neighborhood who didn't belong there, meaning someone who is white in a black neighborhood, for instance, uh, that person would be questioned. And if that person had the gallows look of a kidnapper, which is a quote from a primary source, or they saw someone trying to what seemed like abduct a a black child from their community, uh, neighbors would rush out of their houses and Mm -hmm. would often, you know, subdue that person, that white predator, and sometimes even tear them limb from limb. And you can understand why they might do that. But the gang uses folks like John Pennell, who is mixed race and presents as African American, because... Members of free black communities are loath to suspect someone who looks like uh, yeah. them. And their children especially. You know, the kids in my story, the oldest is 15, the youngest is 8. These kids are loath to suspect people who look like their cousins, their uncles, being the threat that their parents have always warned them about. That's really powerful. I want to ask you a quick question here about your evidence. Because you mentioned that this is a group that sort of their power relies upon their ability to hide in plain sight. So you note that they're not leaving behind business records or a lot of private letters or memoirs or you know paintings or photographs. So what do you consult when you're trying to tell this story? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why the sheer fact of kidnapping and trafficking of black Americans into slavery and its sheer scale is perhaps not commonly known or commonly understood. And to be clear, I'm building on the work of other historians who have taken a good look at this over the years. But the reason this knowledge is not mainstreamed is exactly what you pointed out in your questions. The sources are not readily accessible to document this. Uh, When you're dealing with criminal traffickers, their whole business plan is to work under the radar, to not produce legal sources, to not be arrested, to not have search warrants with their names on them. And the most successful gangs are the ones that achieve a lack of a paper trail, almost by definition, right? Mm. So what's unusual about the book I've written, and it focuses on this one particular case where five boys, as I've described, are kidnapped over the course of a few hours and then uh, trafficked into the Deep South to be sold as slaves. And the early phases of their story leave no paper trail or very, very limited uh, paper trail. But then in this particular case, and this is so, so rare, 
unexpected, infrequent, exceptional things start happening in the second half of this story when these boys are on their journey to the Deep South and when they're put up for sale in Mississippi and Alabama. And the things that happen are in great part due to the confidence, courage, and heroism of the boys themselves that try to change their own destiny. And the destiny that looks like is facing them is a lifetime in slavery in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, does actually start to produce a paper trail because, and I can tell your listeners over the over the microphone here without giving too much of the second half of the book away, that four of these boys will return home to Philadelphia mm-hmm. and give testimony in courts of law about what experiences they had. And that, of course, is a paper trail that we can work with now. We can build out from that. But just how rare that sort of story was um, is really hard to overstate. We might think from looking at 12 Years a Slave that people escaped from kidnapping and trafficking networks all the time because Northup did it. But how long did it take Northup, a man in his 30s? It took him 12 years to do that. Escapes and returns and memoirs are incredibly unusual. Normally, when free black people, adults or children go missing, they are never heard from again. And this case starts like that with all that expectation and destiny And yet it ends up in a very different place with four of these people arriving back in Philadelphia and uh, doing their best to bring their captors to justice. Yeah, and and certainly what I think is really compelling about this book is that you allow for them to have allies because they certainly have white allies in the South and in the North, particularly with the mayor of Philadelphia. But you're also quite critical in your view, and I don't mean critical in terms of a negative view, but critical in your inquiry about exactly what the motivations of those figures are and why they might be behaving the way that they are. May I ask you to talk a little bit about the sort of white uh, allies that appear in this text? Yeah. Again, I don't want to say too much because I want Mm -hmm. folks to look at the book itself, and weird things do start happening in the second half, and they will involve, Mm -hmm. as well as the boys' own courage, confidence, and heroism, they will involve some unexpected decisions from our point of view by several Mississippi slaveholders, several Mississippi elected officials, by a court of a judge in uh, Alabama who doesn't behave how we would think a judge in Alabama mm-hmm. would necessarily behave. Uh, and the same is true for some other white actors in this story at different points. Two Methodist ministers in Alabama, I think, perform admirably under the circumstances, given what we know about how they were paid and the racial climate in which they were living. But if I could flip it back to Philadelphia for a second to take a look at this, one of the white allies that emerges by the end of this story is the mayor of Philadelphia. His name is Joseph Watson. He, I think he serves four one-year terms and then seems to lose a re-election bid for a fifth because he's considered too soft, which might have a lot to do with his allyship in this particular case. But it's important to remember that most people in positions of elected or political office in Philadelphia were not natural allies of the free black community mm-hmm. in this period. Yes, Philadelphia is basically free soil. Pennsylvania is basically a free state. But this is also a deeply racially divided city at this point in its history, that white employers openly discriminate against African-American job applicants. Uh, Housing is ghettoized. The police are not the reliable allies of members of the free black community. And so to find a white mayor who will actually try to intercede in a kidnapping case is to find a unicorn 
mm-hmm. um, in the urban north uh, in this period in American history. And thank God they do, and thank God he is. But his predecessor, when confronted with kidnapping cases, did almost nothing. And his successor, George Mifflin Dallas, who will go on to become the vice president of the United States, does nothing either. Joseph Watson is the right man in the right place. So this is an astonishing odyssey home for the boys. And yet when they get home, it's it's not all rainbows. Certainly there are a lot of circumstances that continue to degenerate in the late antebellum period. Can you talk a little bit about the city that they returned to? Yeah, sure. So if I've painted a dark, pessimistic picture of the racial relations in Philadelphia in the 1820s, by the 1830s, things have only got worse and will, I think, continue to degenerate for a while before they start to get better. So the 1830s are famous for a series of race riots in the city of Philadelphia, which pit the free black population, mm-hmm. uh, which is the minority, against the white majority in pitched battles in urban warfare in a series of terrorist actions against the free black community. Church bombings, basically, we see some of those as well. And one other marker of this is the firebombing of Pennsylvania Hall in 1838, a new anti-slavery building put up by uh, white and black fundraisers for the anti-slavery cause, which is torched. Uh, within, I think, just a few weeks or a few months of it opening, if I remember, because someone mm-hmm. saw a black lady and a white lady coming out of that building arm in arm as if they were friends and allies, and therefore that building must be taught. So if I'm accurate in that retelling, and I may not be entirely... The general thrust, though, is true, which is that uh, Philadelphia becomes more racially divided before it becomes less racially divided. So for the boys that return and for the families of all the boys who continue to live in Philadelphia or the region, this is a city that they call home. They have no better prospects. Uh, And yet the free black community continues to live under siege. And to just step back or to step to the sort of much higher altitude view, one of the things I hope readers will take away from this book, Stolen, is that any idea that there's a clear, bright line between the free north, where everything is rainbows, as you put it, and the slave south, where everything is darkness, is is overly simplistic, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the north is a much more complicated place, and the line between slavery and freedom is much more porous, and black freedom in northern towns and cities is, as we show, much more fragile than perhaps we assumed. Mm-hmm. So you've been working on this project for a long time. I want to ask you a little bit about the origin story, but I also want to ask equally important, particularly for our fellow researchers, many of whom hopefully listen to this podcast, what sustained your interest in it? How did you keep coming back to this difficult story? Yeah, it's hard to think what was going through my mind at the time. So you sort of have to impose meaning on something you maybe weren't reflecting on every second of every day, right? You just sort of get up and go to work. But I would say two things. On the upside, as every historian listening to this knows, doing history is exciting. Doing history is time travel, first of all, plain and simple. And history is also detective work, right? You get to think of yourself, rightly or usually wrongly, as Sherlock Holmes, as Poirot, Mm -hmm. as Miss Marple, as the great detective who is confronted with problems, questions that you must find answers and evidence for, because we're not novelists, we're trying not to make this up, right? And the idea of tracking evidence and piecing it together and coming up with robust, persuasive, compelling, true explanations of how things happened and why they happened is exciting to do, right? You use your brain as an historian every day, which is wonderful. 
And there were lots of those sorts of problems and questions and puzzles for me to sort out in a book like this, which is full of, you know, unknown questions and big evidentiary holes that you have to try and fill in in respectable, compelling ways. So it was an exciting project intellectually to pursue. On the other hand, of course, and this goes to your question, this is about a dark, dark subject, the kidnapping of free black children and trafficking into slavery, probably for the rest of their natural lives, or these, that's the plan and the business plan of these kidnappers. I'm obviously drawn to dark topics. My previous book was about suicide <laughs> in America between the revolution and the civil war. So that says something probably about my psychology rather than anything else. But more seriously, once you start recognizing just how common child trafficking was, it's very hard to walk away from a subject like that. It does pull you in and grab you by the, I don't know, by the throat, by the heart, by all sorts of things. As I write in the afterword to the, to the book, my wife and I were thinking about starting a family when I came across this project uh, or part of it. And we've been starting a family ever since I've been working on this project. And now, several years later, we have a six and a half year old and a three and a half year old. And now I'm a dad, you know, the thought that my children could ever be ripped from me, uh, which was the experience of the parents of these five boys and many other boys and girls um, who were the victims of this reverse underground railroad, just, you know, tears at me in a way that nothing else I've ever studied does. And hopefully there's something universal that readers will see in the bonds between these parents and these children and how hard the children and the parents work to restore those bonds and uh, be reunited. You can't look away from this stuff. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is really moving about this text is the empathy that you bring. That's probably empathy grounded in your own experience becoming a father. But you read at the beginning that the tale told here has holes and that you hope readers will notice those moments when I've taken the liberty to speculate because the paper trail has run dry. And so it's not just about evidence. It's also about imagining how to humanize the conflict and to bring it down to a human scale. And I wonder, as we're thinking about ourselves, not only as writers, but also as readers, what models do you consult for that? I would say something really obvious, which is that I read a lot of fiction. And I found, even though to be clear, this is not fiction, this is history, this is factual, there are, there are um, a mountain of evidence. There's what, 70 pages of notes, I think, at the back of this right. uh, trade book, uh, which is unusual for a trade book. I am definitely inspired by uh, fiction writers who are able to achieve compelling interiority, right? Able to put themselves in the minds or on the shoulders of people very different to them and reason their, their way through how a person different from them would feel in a given circumstance. So I try to draw on uh, writers I admire, and I'll just name one book, though I could probably mm -hmm. uh, keep going all day about writers I admire. Uh, in the world of fiction, at least, there's a book called The Known World by uh, Edward P. Jones. It won every prize going about 10 years ago when it was published. And it's a book about slavery. It's a novel about slavery. And I've heard Edward Jones speak a couple of times, and he's very honest that he did very little research on mm -hmm. the history before he wrote this thing. But what he has in reservoirs is, is empathy um, mm -hmm. for people different uh, from him. So I've tried to learn a little from books like that. And at the other end of the spectrum, where my own paper trail for the boys or their parents or the kidnappers in this story has run dry, 
I worked my butt off to find other types of evidence from other human beings who went through similar experiences mm-hmm. or might have similar perspectives to gain a better understanding of what their perspectives might be. So just to give one example, I have about 100 words from the boys themselves about what the experience was like of walking a 1,000 miles. And I write a lot more than 100 words in the book about that experience. I write two full chapters about that experience. And so I had to go looking for new sources. I used the records of legal domestic slave traders. I used the records of other survivors of slavery who'd made similar journeys across the South, both of which were very useful. I also went, though, to the accounts written by European travelers uh, who were touring around the United States in the 1810s, 1820s, 1830s. You know, what is this America? They would often visit D.C., Philadelphia, Niagara Falls, New Orleans. They would often travel by carriage, fancy carriage presumably, from Virginia to New Orleans, which means they went on the same roads that my five boys were forced to walk barefoot for four months. And these European travelers kept endless notes. They often published self-published sort of vanity travel accounts when they got back to England about their what they'd seen out their window of their carriages. And they saw coffle after coffle, walking chain gang after walking chain gang of black Americans slowly trudging south, many of them legally purchased in Virginia, Maryland, Delaware by legal slave traders not breaking the law. That's the domestic slave trade. And some of them presumably illegally kidnapped and trafficked uh, adults and children in what I call the reverse underground railroad trying to blend in. The European travelers certainly couldn't tell the difference people they saw out their window. But they write about what these folks looked like. They write about uh, what they had on their feet, what clothes they were wearing, what chains they were bound to, uh, about what weapons their captors had with them. And they write about the looks on these human beings' faces as they marched or trudged past these European visitors' carriages' windows. And the European visitors, almost to a man, choose the same metaphor to describe what these black Americans looked like as they marched towards Natchez and New Orleans. They say these people look for all the world like they were in a funeral Hmm. procession. That's the metaphor everyone goes to repeatedly who saw these folks. And I think that speaks volumes. And I try to burrow into that and get at some of the interiority of that external description. I want to close by just returning to one point that you sort of alluded to at the beginning of that last answer, which was, this is a trade publication. And I think that that's actually kind of remarkable because you are an associate professor. A lot of the incentive structures around you publishing at a university press, but you've chosen to publish this with a trade publication. And as somebody who's very interested in different forms of scholarship, I'm curious to know, why did you choose a trade publication? And second, after you had committed to that, did the editorial process tax you in ways that you didn't anticipate, or did it open up parts of your brain that you hadn't used previously? So, yeah, so this is a trade book, meaning it's published by Simon & Schuster, one of the big five for-profit publishing companies based in New York. And uh, they fully hope that this book will be a commercial success and they will recoup their investment mm-hmm. in it, which is a very different financial proposition from the way most university presses to non-profits operate, to be clear. Whether or not it will backfire professionally for me is decision left in the hands of my promotion committee at the University of Maryland or what they think of this book and whether it meets their scholarly standards. I certainly hope it does because it is a scholarly book dressed up mm-hmm. as a book for general readers. And I've already talked about the notes at the back. But I was definitely trepidatious mm-hmm. about going down this trade route. I wanted, I was certain, to write this project as a narrative-driven piece of scholarship that 
could appeal to general readers, and I'm keenly aware from my own prior publishing experience that most university presses, most books coming out of university presses are not guaranteed to have crossover appeal to the general public. And Simon & Schuster is better able to get this book into public libraries as opposed to research libraries, in bookstores as opposed to graduate reading lists. I thought this subject matter could sustain that sort of treatment. And as you know, I've isolated one particular case, this case of these five boys, which I think stands in for the larger phenomenon of the tens of thousands of people who went through similar things. But because I'm focusing on one case, um, I'm able to tell this as a narrative, as a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, with a discrete set of characters. And I've had to teach myself, as I referenced by talking about Edward P. Jones, a man I greatly admire, to try to write in a narrative-driven way. On the inside baseball part of that, what's it like to write a trade book when you're not trained or have no experience (laughs) in writing a trade book? I think I feared the worst and prepared for the worst. I expected my editor would say, no notes of any kind. You've got to put Abraham Lincoln and zombies in the title to get it to sell. If you can pretend your name is Bill O'Reilly, then we'll sell a lot more books. Those sorts of sort of nightmare scenarios. And my experience working with Dawn Davis at Simon & Schuster has been the opposite of that. It's been wonderful. She published Never Caught, the Erica Dunbar book, previous uh, years ago. She also published The Known World, which was amazing, the Edward P. Jones book I mentioned. And while it would be her preference for there to be fewer pages of notes at the end, she did not stand in my way when I said this was a hill I wanted to die on. And we both had different ideas about things like the cover image of this book and the title of this book. And we went through multiple iterations of very different cover designs for this book and very different titles for this book as well. And at the end of that process, I can say that when it comes to the title ideas and the cover ideas that I had and the cover ideas and title ideas that she had, she was right And I was wrong. And it was as simple as that. She is a professional. And I couldn't be happier with uh, the way, for instance, the cover image turned out and the high production values that Simon & Schuster has brought to this particular publication. And more importantly, they've been able to get it in front of readers. You may be well aware that reviews in mainstream newspapers are very hard to come by these days because so few newspapers review so few books written by professional historians. Had it not been for Simon & Schuster, I would not have had a review by David S. Reynolds in the Wall Street Journal the day of publication, Mm -hmm. uh, which got this book on many, many Americans' uh, radars in ways I could never have achieved through other channels. Well, it's been an inspiration for me watching you as one of our former fellows take this project and transform it into something that's really subtle and nuanced, but at the same time accessible, and to see the success that you've had in producing a piece of scholarship that also serves as public scholarship. I'm delighted that the library company played some small role in it. I'm just going to gloss that and say the library company, as I write in the book, is my favorite place uh, to work. Uh, That's in the book. Go looking for it. It's a true thing. Uh, I love the library company. I'm happy to be associated with it any chance I get. Thank you very much, Rick. Cheers. Cheers.